It may sound unspiritual to your ears to say on this joyous Easter morning that we don't need one day in the year to celebrate Jesus' resurrection. In fact, if you know your Bibles, you understand that each first day of the week is the Lord's Day, and each Lord's Day is a remembrance of, it's a celebration of Jesus' resurrection from the grave. It was all on a day almost 2,000 years ago, numbering some 104,000 Lord's Days, if my mathematics is correct, since that first calendar-changing day, and we're reminded of that cosmic event every Lord's Day when our Savior burst the bonds of death and came forth triumphant from the grave laden with the spoils of salvation. Here's the good news that's taught by our Lord's resurrection. Think about a day, think about a life in which Jesus hadn't been raised Were Jesus still in the grave, brethren, we, of all people, would be be people to be pitied. We, We would be doomed to a hapless, hopeless life here, with only a miserable, eternal hell waiting for us at the end of our days. As bad as it could ever be here, it would be infinitely worse the day that we gasped our last breath for all of eternity. Ah, but if you're a new creature in Christ, if you're a child of a heavenly birth, one with God and with Jesus, one glory is in you begun, as we sing. Because of Jesus' resurrection, you now enjoy the first fruits, the very beginning of the enjoyment of eternal life. You've experienced a spiritual rebirth. You have the presence of the Holy Spirit within you. You're at peace with God. You have a joyful, meaningful life to the day of your death. And then you will be transported to the land of pure delight to be with your beloved Lord, world without end. Amen. All of this is certain for you because of Jesus' resurrection. It is impossible to overstate the importance of Christ's resurrection to the Christian faith. Jesus' literal bodily resurrection from the grave, in fact, it forms the very cornerstone of biblical Christianity. The apostles certainly thought so. You cannot read any of their sermons in which they speak of the death of Christ without also mentioning the resurrection of our Savior from the grave. Jews and Gentiles didn't have a problem with Jesus dying. They didn't understand the implications of His death, but they certainly didn't expect and they would never believe the most glorious truth is that this one who died for our sin was raised again from the grave never to die again. That is the glorious truth of the resurrection. That's why it should, it should bring joy to every heart in this place, and it should strike fear in the heart of everyone that's not prepared to die, that's still dead in trespasses 
and sins. By his resurrection, the Lord Jesus marvelously demonstrated his almighty power over sin to everyone who trusts in him for salvation. Now this morning, I wish to remind us from the scriptures of the power of Christ's resurrection to deliver us from our sin. And I have four points before coming to a few words of concluding application. What does Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead mean for we, for us who are sinners? Well, first of all, we're going to see that Jesus' resurrection delivers us from deadness and sin. Secondly, it delivers us from the penalty of our sin. Thirdly, it delivers us from the power and pollution of our sin. And finally, it will deliver us from the very presence of sin. So what does Jesus' resurrection have to say to those who are sinners? Well, notice first of all, Christ's resurrection delivers us from deadness in sin. Now, brethren, we may trust the Bible because the Bible is an honest book. It tells us the truth about ourselves, even unflattering truths that we would never know apart from God telling us. In fact, if we had written the Bible, we would never say these things that are true of us that cast us in such a dismal and a bad light. The Bible informs us that we enter this world dead in transgressions and sins. It tells us that we are dead to God. We are dead to righteousness. We are dead to all that is truly right and good. And because we are born spiritually dead, instead we love wickedness and we hate holiness. We like those things that are seemly and we detest those things that are holy. We would rather grovel, grovel in the gutter of our sin than to rise and to seek to live holy in Christ Jesus. And because we are devoid of spiritual life, we are powerless to do anything pleasing in the sight of God. Paul says that we were born sons of disobedience. That is, we were characterized by disobedience. And children of wrath, that's what awaits us. That's what we have to look forward to at the end of our lives as sons of disobedience. And for this reason, we are blind to spiritual realities. And if we're honest with ourselves, we regard the gospel as foolishness. And we regard those who follow Christ with pity and disdain and the worst kind of deluded fools. And again, for this reason, we are blind to the kingdom of God. And we lived a life, if honestly reflected upon was utter meaninglessness. That's what Solomon speaks of in the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, all is, is vanity. It's meaningless without Jesus Christ. 
That's what it means to be spiritually dead. Oh, to be sure, we have physical life. We're animated. We breathe. But we don't breathe the breath of true life. But even though we may have physical life, we're dead to spiritual and eternal realities. They don't mean anything to us. We hear about them. We think they're stupid. Why would anybody dedicate their lives to understanding and living in light of these things? I mean, there's, there's things to do, places to go. You know, this life is to be lived to the fullest. We're to live fast and die young and leave a good-looking corpse, right? Life is... To be gained with both hands. To be lived to the fullest. We're to go for the gusto, right? But at the end, what? At the end of that, where does it lead? We cannot make ourselves alive. We can try to keep ourselves alive, but we can't make ourselves spiritually alive. Dead sinners can't make themselves living saints. That can't happen. We smell of death. We don't smell it, but we smell of death to those who are alive in Christ. They understand what we are because they once were that, but now they've smelled the aroma of Jesus Christ, and He's the one that they love. We're enchanted by the thoughts of being with Him. Whom to know is eternal life. But even worse than smelling of death to unconverted people, we reeked in the nostrils of God Himself. Our sin has an aroma about it. We can't see it, but it's a stench in God's nostrils. He created us for better things. But we've blinded our eyes and we put our fingers in our ears and we've run as far and as fast as we can away from Him. We're spiritually dead. Instead, we, we love sin and we serve Satan. And we didn't know it, but of all the people of the world, we were the most miserable. What we needed was resurrection life. And that resurrection life is found only in Jesus Christ. Jesus said it this way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. The same one who said that said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even though he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He shall never die eternally. We have spiritual life in the here and now, and we have tasted the first fruits of eternal life, which will be fully enjoyed in all of its abundance in the age to come. You see, spiritually dead sinners need a life-giving Savior. Jesus put it this way, you must be what? Born again. Peter blessed God for the new life and hope which God in mercy bestows upon Christians through the resurrection of Jesus. He writes at the beginning of his first epistle, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Without Christ's resurrection, there would be no deliverance from spiritual death, no new birth, no life in Christ, no life with Christ forever. Without His resurrection, we would still be dead in our sins. If He had not been raised from the dead, we would be utterly without hope in this world. And if you're a Christian... You've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Bible says you live in Him. He is your life. And all of this assumes a glorious and essential, a, a basic truth of the Christian life and of all the blessings of salvation. And that is union with Jesus Christ. Union with Christ is the essential reality of the Christian life. If you're a Christian, you were chosen in Christ before the world began. Likewise, you were in Christ in His holy life and in His atoning death. In these events of His life, He represented you. When Jesus gave His life on Calvary, every person in union with Him died with Him and was buried with Him. And three days later, when He burst the bonds of death, all who were in Him rose victoriously over the grave in Him. Biblical baptism pictures this mystical union of believers with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. We read in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, these words. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. He walked in newness of life, so we too might walk in newness of life. He's the great pattern into which God pours His people. His life becomes their life in the same way that His death was their death. Paul says, For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Beloved, because you are in spiritual union with Christ now, you will receive a glorified body with Jesus in Jesus when He returns from the dead. You will have His body. In fact, because you're in Christ, you are even now seated with Him spiritually in glory. This is one of the most profound statements. We can't wrap our minds around it. What the Apostle Paul says after speaking of our being dead in trespasses and sins, of our being alive with Jesus Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 2 verses 5 and 6, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and notice, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him 
in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Well, right now you say, oh, Pastor Steve, I'm, I'm not in heaven, I'm on earth. But spiritually speaking, positionally, you are with Christ in heaven. And the fact that He is there now and you're in Him, one day you'll be with Him. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that is where you will go when you die. But one day, at the dawning of the eternal Sabbath day, in what Jesus calls the regeneration in Matthew, we, with glorified bodies, will dwell with Christ and enjoy the fullness of eternal life forever in a glorified universe. Brethren, let me say it again, because He lives, you live. So Christ's resurrection delivers us from deadness and sin. Secondly, Christ's resurrection delivers us from the penalty of our sin. We not only have a spiritual problem, we have a legal problem. Resurrection provides us life from the dead. And it also provides us pardon from our sin. You see, not only are we spiritually dead sinners needing new life, we enter this world condemned sinners needing pardon. And this for two reasons. First of all, we are born condemned in Adam. Adam was the covenant head and representative of the whole human race. And Adam represented us in his first sin. When he ate, we ate. We were in Adam. And all that he did in committing the first sin, we become guilty for because he represented us. Paul speaks of this in Romans 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and who was that? Well, obviously it's Adam he's speaking of. And death through sin and so death spread to all men, notice, because all sinned. When Adam sinned, we sinned in him, and therefore we're guilty of that first sin. That first sin committed by the covenant head of the human race, the first Adam. But brethren, this is not all. Our guilt is only compounded. We're doubly guilty because of Adam's sin and because of our own sin. Each one of us adds to our guilt in Adam by the sins that we commit through our lives. And our guilt by Adam's sin and our own sin demands payment. What does the Bible say? The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall surely die. There's no escaping it. None of us are exempt from death because each one of us is guilty before God. There is none righteous, no, not one. God made man perfect, but he sought out many inventions. There's no one who is righteous and doesn't sin. The Bible says this again and again, and it's a repeated refrain. 
You see, we're not only spiritually dead, we're also legally guilty before God because of our sin. Not only do we need new life, we need pardon. Christ, who is our life, is our legal representative before God. He's the second Adam. He never sinned. He never broke a single commandment, either in his heart or by his life. He's the beloved Son in whom the Father is well pleased. He obeyed God's law perfectly. By fulfilling the letter and the spirit of the law, he gained a perfectly righteous standing before God, not chiefly for himself, but for everyone who trusts in him for their acceptance with God. His righteousness becomes our righteousness when we believe upon him for salvation. But brethren, this is only half of the glorious gospel story. Jesus, as the sinless Son of God, not only earned our perfect righteousness by His holy life, He also bore the terrible wrath of God earned by our perfect unrighteousness, the penalty that is due our sin. He's the just one who died for the unjust, the guiltless for the guilty that he might bring us to God. Just as his righteousness becomes our righteousness when we trust him, he takes our guilt and our liability to the wrath of God as if it belonged to him. By his death, he pays for our sin and he earns our pardon. He did for us what we can't do for ourselves. We can't make ourselves spiritually alive, and we can't bring about our own pardon. You see, Jesus, as the second Adam, is our legal representative before God. We're born in Adam. We're born again in the second Adam. We're condemned in the first, and we're declared righteous in the second. By his righteous life, the Lord Jesus Christ removes the guilt of Adam's sin charged against us because of our union with him. He also removes the guilt that we've heaped up before God by our own sin. And this sin is pardoned in the death of Christ, and that the sin is pardoned in the death of Christ is proven by the resurrection of Christ. If he had stayed in the grave or went from the grave to heaven without coming out of the grave for everyone to see, we would be people in doubt, would we not? When he said, it is finished, was it finished? If he went from the grave without coming out of it, just right to glory? It was a mercy that he came forth from the grave. Because he proved without a shadow of a doubt that God had accepted his sacrifice. And therefore, we are pardoned because of trusting in him. You see, his resurrection publicly testifies to the glorious truth that God has cleared the record of all who trust in him for their pardon. You see, believers are not only 
absolved from guilt by Jesus' death. They're declared righteous by His resurrection. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul speaks of it this way at the end of Romans 4. He who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Jesus' resurrection assures all who believe upon him that they're not only delivered from damnation, but that they have credited to their account the very righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. The double imputation. Our sins are imputed to him. His righteousness is imp imputed to us. All of our vices transferred to him. All of his virtues transferred to us. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 makes this plain. He, that is the Father, made him the Son. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's a great glorious transaction that has taken place. If you're a Christian, your sins are forever placed upon Christ and buried in the grave, and His righteousness is placed never to be removed upon you. Union with Christ. It's the essential reality that undergirds these glorious truths. If you're a Christian, you are in union with Christ. His death was your death. His resurrection was your resurrection. His death pays for your pardon. His resurrection provides you newness of life and proof that you've been pardoned. And because you are right with God, you have peace with God. And experientially, because you are right with God and have peace with God, you enjoy the peace of God. It guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Having been justified by faith, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When upon the bloody cross, our Savior cried in victory, it is finished. He testified to our pardon, and from his open tomb, our living Lord triumphantly declared our righteousness before God. Well, there's even more blessing from Jesus' resurrection. It also provides the ground of our adoption into God's forever family as His beloved reconciled children. You see, our sin had estranged us from God. It put God at enmity with us. Therefore, we needed reconciliation with God. And Jesus' resurrection provides the basis of our reconciliation to be at peace with God and joined to the family of God. And His resurrection testifies that we have been reconciled to the God that we had offended by our rebellion and our transgressions of His law. You see, in our resurrected Lord, we are brought back into communion with God. We are restored to His favor. So Paul teaches in Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. For if while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. It's a powerful statement. Delivered from our sins and pardoned because of his death. And now we have life with God and peace with God because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead spoken of here by his life. Those words should ring joy within our hearts. You see, Jesus' victory over death not only proves that we are pardoned and declared right before God, we are now accepted in the Beloved. Jesus is our elder brother. Jesus, as the Son of God, is the Beloved Son. We are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. We're made members of the family of God. Furthermore, we have the prayers of the Lord Jesus Christ. He prays for us. Paul asks with an air of holy triumphalism in Romans chapter 8, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Yeah, there are people who condemn, but their condemnation can't stick because God has justified us through what Jesus Christ has done. Paul goes on to say, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He prays for us. Aren't we encouraged when we hear that people pray for us? You know, I'm praying for you. That has a way of lifting a burden off of our shoulders, doesn't it? But here, it's Jesus Christ who prays for us. Ought we not to be all the more encouraged to know that the one who died for us and lives for us prays for us? You see, Jesus' death and resurrection not only guarantees that we're right with God, it testifies that we forever have the smile of God and we have our Savior's prayers. And because we have God's pardon as our judge, we have His approval as our Heavenly Father. All of this is ours because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it is that we sing, Pardon from an offended God, Pardon for sins of deepest dye. Pardon bestowed through Jesus' blood. Pardon that brings the rebel nigh. Oh, may this glorious matchless love, this godlike miracle of grace, teach mortal tongues like those above to raise this song of lofty praise. Who is a pardoning God like thee, or who has grace so rich and free? So Jesus' resurrection delivers us from deadness and sin, from the penalty of sin. Notice thirdly, Jesus' resurrection delivers us from the power and pollution of our sin. Brethren, how destructive sin is. It kills us spiritually. It condemns us legally. It ruins us morally. You see, if sin's death and damnation were not ruinous enough, sin also enslaves us, and it defiles us. 
In the same way that we cannot resurrect ourselves from sin's death and justify ourselves from sin's damnation, we are helpless to liberate ourselves from sin's power and purify ourselves from sin's pollution. You see, because we are sinners, we traffic in things that physically speaking we wouldn't want to step in. That's the kind of people we are. And again, a resurrected Christ comes to our aid. He knows our needs. He provides not only life and pardon, He also provides power and purity. First of all, brothers and sisters, Jesus' resurrection empowers you to wage successful warfare against the power of your sin. In fact, you are dead to sin's domination. You, you can no longer argue, if you're a Christian, that sin has its upper hand on you, that you don't have any resources to fight it. That's calling God a liar. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 6, verses 9 through 11? Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. There's the model, there's the pattern. We are in Christ, therefore, what is the conclusion? Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because we have resurrection life empowering us, we are dead to the reigning power of our sins. That which once had us under its boot heel, we can push up by the power of God and stand on our own two feet. Since Christ was raised from the dead, all who are in Him, you see, are endued with resurrection power to successfully fight their sin. You were able to live a righteous life. Why? Because of your flesh? No. But because the Spirit of the resurrected Christ lives within you. You're dead to the reigning power of your sin. You're alive to the reigning power of grace. Old things have passed away. New things have come. If you're a Christian, you are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. You've been empowered by His living presence in you to put to death your indwelling sin. You see, when Christ saves us, we still have sin that we fight against. But we fight against it with a greater power. Greater is He not only that is in us than He that is in the world, but greater is He that is in us than the power of the remaining sin in us. Paul argues that point in the great 8th chapter of the book of Romans. And there he describes the Christian life as life in the Spirit. That the Christian life is resurrection life. Romans 8 Verses 8 through 11. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead indwells you, 
Here's a Trinitarian verse, by the way. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, the Spirit of Him, that's the Father, His Spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who indwells you. That's the glorious good news. So what does that mean practically when we're faced with moral dilemmas and temptations to sin? So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh. Once we lived in the flesh, now we live in the Spirit. Things have drastically, radically changed for the good. We are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, not to its dictates. We're not its lackey anymore. We're no longer its slaves. We're its master because of Christ. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We're engaged in successful moral warfare against our sins because we have an almighty Savior who is raised from the dead and has indwelt us by His Spirit. Christian, because of Christ's Resurrection, you live now on a supernatural plane. No, you don't live above the level of temptation. You live with the ability to fight temptation. This means that when you give in to sin, you voluntarily relinquish the power of the Spirit. You live below your privileges in Christ Jesus. Never forget, a life lived under the power of the flesh is death, but resurrection life enables you to continually put to death the sins that would kill you. That's our hope. That's our experience. Bless God. Fourthly, having seen... The resurrection of Christ delivers us from deadness and sin and the penalty of sin and the power and pollution of sin. Finally, Christ's resurrection promises deliverance from the very presence of sin. We gain our first taste of eternal life and our final and forever victory over sin, the moment of our new birth by the regenerating work of God Almighty. Uh, But there comes a far more glorious day. And it begins when we are transported to glory when we die. We will experience the fullness of eternal life when Christ calls forth our bodies from the grave. He clothes them with eternity, giving us everlasting Resurrection bodies like the body of Jesus Christ, the one in whom we are, and the one from whom we'll receive this body. We have this assurance because Jesus was raised from the dead. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection in the same way Paul argues that first fruits forecast the coming full harvest. Paul laces his letters with the glorious promise of Christ's resurrection, devoting his fullest treatment of it to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. 
And after speaking of the necessity of the resurrection to ground the Christian hope, Paul argues the certainty of the believer's resurrection by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He argues from the first fruits to the full harvest. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 23. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ at his coming. You see, we live between the, the harvest of the first fruits and the final harvest. We live in a day of planting before the day of reaping. So when will Christ's people receive their resurrection bodies? Well, Paul says here, at Christ's coming. Listen also to the Apostle John. Beloved, now we are the children of God. This is 1 John chapter 3. Now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. What a transforming look by the power of the Spirit that's going to be when we're transformed into the very glorious image of our Savior and Sovereign Jesus Christ. You know, we talk about people, you know, you're a sight for sore eyes. Oh, what a sight for our sore eyes that will be on that day. Paul fills in some details in this Thessalonian epistle, chapter 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. You see, we're getting our marching orders then. It's time for Israel, as it were, to break camp and come out of the graves. We're going into the promised land, you see. That's the language, that's the imagery Paul is using here. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. There is going to be a generation that isn't going to die and molder in the grave. They're going to be instantaneously changed from mortal bodies to immortal bodies, from natural bodies to supernatural bodies. At the trumpet call, we shall be summoned from the grave for dead, for alive. All will be clothed with glorified resurrection bodies. Let me ask you are, you, are you ready for that day? Are you demonstrating resurrection life today? You see the same resurrection power of Jesus Christ that resurrects you spiritually from 
sin's death absolves you from sin's guilt and declares your righteousness and liberates you from sin's power and cleanses you from sin's pollution will conform your resurrected body to the very glorified body of your Savior. No one but Christ and nothing less than His resurrection wields such power. So we read in Philippians 3 and verse 21, speaking of Christ, He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. Notice, by the exertion of the power that He has, even to subject all things to Himself. What will the resurrection body be like? Well, the apostles saw something of it after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were eyewitnesses to His resurrection. But it seems that the Bible teaches that they did not see Him in His resurrection body in all of His resplendent glory with which He will reveal Himself when He returns in the clouds. John, who saw the Lord by way of vision in the Revelation of Christ says in 1 John, It has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. Brethren, what a glorious sight that is going to be. It's going to be a conforming, transforming sight. All of God's people shall be made like Him from the humblest to the greatest. Indeed, all of our humblest states shall be conformed to the body of His glory. So let me ask you, will that blessed, glorious day receive you? What will it be for you on that day? Can you say with joyful anticipation, Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Okay, two crucial conclusions will be done. First of all, without Christ's resurrection, we have no hope of salvation. That's the bottom line here. Imagine living in a world in which Christ had not been raised from the dead. We would still be forever dead in our sin and without life in Christ, forever guilty, without pardon from the penalty of our sin, never knowing victory over the power of sin, never cleansed from the pollution of our sin, with no promise of deliverance from the very presence of sin. You see, without Christ's resurrection, there would be no gospel, no hope, no true happiness. All preaching of salvation would necessarily be a lie, and the promise of deliverance from sin in Jesus Christ would be a cruel hoax. Preachers would be hucksters, and their followers would be poor, deluded people who think that this is life and it's only going to get better. Ah, but Jesus has been raised from the dead. Therefore, we are people of hope. Christ is our hope. But if that weren't true, we would taste the bitter fruits, first fruits of hell, 
here and have before us only a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fire which shall consume the adversaries. If you are not a Christian, this is your condition today. And this would be your best life. But for those who are in Christ, no matter how bad things can be, or no matter how good things can become, the best is yet to come. So if you are a believer, you banish that horrible, hellish nightmare from your thinking. That was where you once were. That was your end. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, you have a solid and a sure hope. Indeed, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of promise. And by the indwelling of the Spirit of Christ, you have a foretaste of the future resurrection. That's why Paul speaks in these terms, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Spirit of the glorified Christ in you promises glory to come. You see, right now, beloved, you have one foot in heaven. Finally, the Spirit of the risen Christ enables Christians to live resurrection-empowered lives today. If you've experienced resurrection life and pardon, purification, and hope of glory, keep your eyes fixed upon the resurrected Christ. He is your life. So Paul argues in Colossians 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, raised up with Christ, talking about spiritually speaking at present, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Child of God, you of all people are the most privileged. But often we don't recognize that, do we? You've died to sin, you're alive to God, you're pardoned, you're purified, you're empowered. And therefore we're exhorted here to live up to our privileges in the resurrected Christ. Keep your eyes fixed upon Him. Even now you dwell in the heavenlies with Him. Live your life with a heavenly preoccupation. Keep seeking the things of Christ. Why? Because they're yours. The things of this world, they're passing away. It doesn't matter how much you gain, you can't take it with you. And it doesn't matter how much you do to feed your flesh, you're only going to be punished for it for all eternity. What an exchange kind of exchange is that? What do you have to gain from that? A diseased body here and a tortured body there? Yeah, even though we have these privileges, we often don't use them. We're princes and we live like paupers. We have unfading riches and glory And yet we muddle about in this life, living distracted lives as if we were destitute of our privileges which are in Christ. 
What would you say about a millionaire, or a billionaire today, I guess, who lived in a run-down tenement? He went and ate out of garbage cans. And yet he had millions in the bank. You say, there's something wrong with that man. You know, he doesn't have to live in the fanciest mansion in town, but that little hovel that he lives in, he's crazy. Ah, but that's what sin does to us. We have unimaginable riches in Jesus Christ, but we don't draw upon him. We muddle about in these lives, living as paupers when we're princes. We're the king's children. We're children of God. You prove that you're raised, with, raised up with Christ when you live a life that's demonstrably holy. Rather, remember what we're reminded of when John was leading us this day. We live in a sin-cursed, devil-dominated, wicked world in which evil is called good and good is called evil. The world wants us to make the great exchange to look down on the things that are utterly precious and to hold up as high in esteem those things which are foul, putrid. Paul goes on immediately to teach in Colossians 3 the kind of life that we should live in light of our standing in Christ. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of Him who created Him. You see, resurrection life empowers mortification of sin. And if you're seeking things above, you'll be careful to live a morally pure life below. 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be, we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. Okay, what's the practical application, John? These are glorious truths, but how shall we then live? Verse 3, And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. You see, resurrection life is a purified life. And it produces purified lives in light of the blessed hope. See, the Bible doesn't teach the carnal Christian that you're saved and you can live like this wicked world and still have fire insurance at the end. Behold, old things have passed away, new things have come. We're different people. Wouldn't you expect that of all of these glorious things brought about by the resurrection of Christ were true, we would be a different people who would live differently than the way we once did? 
The Bible everywhere teaches this. You are living a resurrection life when the hope of Jesus motivates you to live a pure life. And therefore, brethren, beware of giving in to the promptings of remaining sin. You have greater power within you. Don't give in to it. Beware of giving in to the temptations of a busy devil. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Beware of giving in to the solicitations of a godless world. You've been crucified to the world. The world's been crucified to you, Paul says. Furthermore, beware as well of the evil influence of compromised professing Christians who live no differently than the world and say, you can have all of this in heaven too. That's a lie straight out of the pit. Don't accept as your standard the kind of purity of this Laodicean Christianity, which is so common in our decadent day. Remember who you are and whose you are and why you're here and where you're going. And this will radically impact the way that you live. Listen again to Peter's benediction. May it be your motivation. 1 Peter 1 verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. Let me ask you, has your life been changed by a resurrected Christ? Are you animated by the hope of glory? Is heaven your inheritance? Have you entrusted your soul to a resurrected Savior? And I plead with you, with judgment day honesty, to answer these questions before God. Because they're not little questions, they're big questions, they're eternity-defining questions. And therefore, let us come to God in prayer. Oh, our Father, we, we stand naked before you, before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We can't lie. We can't dodge the things that we've heard this morning. We can't point the finger anywhere else but at ourselves. And therefore we pray, Father, if there be any here that are dead in trespasses and sins and have the penalty of their sin hanging over them and, and they're, they're living under the power of their sin and are polluted by it, we pray that you would speak to them, speak to them this morning, that this would prove to be a living word. For we know a living word will be a dead word and will be a damning word if it isn't received by faith. And therefore we pray you would empower this word to the encouragement of saints and to the salvation of sinners. Do a great and a glorious work in this room. Lord, you know the hearts of everyone here and you're a merciful and a gracious and an all-powerful God. And we pray that you would extend your hand in saving mercy to those that are lost and to build up the weak and those that are cast down, those that are struggling with their sin, that you would make them more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loved them and gave himself for them. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.